John 16, verse 8. And I'm continuing the series on the Holy Spirit. And this evening, conviction of sin is the topic I'm going to cover. John 16, verse 8, on conviction of sin. Sonder oortuiging. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. O great God of heaven and earth, Lord of glory, King of the ages, the ancient of days, the judge of all men, the judge of every angel, of every heavenly being, of all creation, of every demon, of Satan himself, and of every power and authority and dominion in heaven and on earth. We bow before you, the Most High, and pray that you would now give us ears to hear and that the Lord himself will speak the words of life and that the Spirit would indeed not just only teach us on conviction of sin, but bring conviction of sin and regeneration, the new life, the new birth that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Amen. At the seminary I studied more than 20 years ago. Before my time, I heard that there were two brothers. One was studying to be a pastor, and the other brother was just living in the hostel, renting. I don't know what he was doing, working somewhere, or doing some kind of other studies. But the, the other brother wasn't a Christian. And the brother who was studying for the ministry had spoken to his brother, shared the gospel again and again, and begged him to repent, but his brother would not repent. And one day, this pastor, this brother studying to be a pastor, grabbed his brother by the shirt, and he pinned him to the ground, and he started beating him, and saying, now you will repent. <laughs> you will never convict someone of sin that way. The only one who can convict of sin is the Holy Spirit. And we see this in John 16, if you have it open in verse 8. And when He comes, that is the Spirit from the previous verse, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now we're going to answer three questions this evening. The first question how does the Holy Spirit convict people? Who oortuigt die gees mense? Now Jesus in verse 7, if you have your Bible open, Jesus says, Nevertheless I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit here is called the Helper. He's the Advocate. He is the Comforter. He is the counselor. Uh, we have different Bible translations here, and it translates it in different ways. Really, the Greek word there is the parakletos, the paraclete, the, the one who comes, literally the Greek, the one who comes to stand right beside you. And for the Christian, obviously, that would mean the Holy Spirit comes right beside you as an advocate, as a lawyer to defend you. He comes right beside you as the helper, the paraclete, to comfort you, to strengthen you 
for when trials come and when suffering comes. You see that in chapters, chapter 15, for instance, right at the end in verse 26 and 27, Jesus says to the apostles, you will bear witness about me, but also the Holy Spirit, this helper, this advocate, he will also bear witness with you. He will bear witness. And then it, what's he bearing witness of? You just continue reading into chapter 16. Jesus says, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to be persecuted by unbelievers, by the world. Even people who are religious, who think they are serving God, they're going to persecute you and think they're doing God a favor. Do you know of someone like that in the Bible who thought he's serving God when he killed Christians, arrested them? The Apostle Paul, right? Before he was saved. And so the Holy Spirit will comfort you. He will give you strength to go through the persecution. The Holy Spirit in chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus will send the Spirit... He will send this counselor, this comforter, this advocate to be with you and to dwell in you forever. And now we come to our passage and we see we've got the Holy Spirit also who will help and teach the, the apostles. Uh, if you continue from verse 12, Jesus says, I've got many things I want to teach you. still want to tell you, but you won't understand it now. But when he comes, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. He will teach you everything. He will remind you, it says even in chapter 14, verse 26, of all that I have taught you. And verse 27, Jesus says, I give you peace. Hefzibah, I think you prayed it. Uh, not like the world gives you, but as you prayed it this morning, I think he gives you peace. So Christ gives us peace by the Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do with unbelievers? Well, it says in verse 8, I just read, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Did Jesus do that job when he was on earth? Did he fulfill that role and convict people of their sin? Yes, in John 7 verse 7, the world hates me, Jesus says, because I, I, I tell them about their sin, I show them they're wrong. So they hate Jesus because of what he preached, he convicted them, and by his life. His life is holy and they are unholy. And so now the light shines in the darkness and people hate it. They do not want to come to the light. But now Jesus says in verse 7, When I go away, I will send this helper or this paraclete, this advocate, to convict the world. He will fulfill this role now. And it's actually to your advantage that I go away. Because now Jesus, when he was on earth, if he was in Bethlehem, was he also in Jerusalem? Was he also in Nazareth at the same time and in Capernaum? No. Jesus was in one place at a time because Jesus became man. We know he's also God. But when he was on earth, he acted as a man. So he was one place at a time. How many people could he have convicted at a time? Well, the people he's preaching to. But it's to advantage, he says, to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come. But if I go away, I'll send him, verse 7. So Jesus sends the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Where is he? Well, he's in China and in Brazil and in Zambia and in South Africa and in England and in Norway and in Canada and in Japan and in Australia all at the same time. Psalm 139 verse 7. Where shall I flee from your uh, presence? Where will I go from your spirit? So the Holy Spirit is everywhere so he can convict people everywhere at the same time. There can be a revival in one moment in China and in Canada. Sinners can be saved right now in South Africa and in Scotland because the Holy Spirit is 
omnipresent. Obviously, Jesus as well, he's God and he's man, so in his divine nature, but the spirit is everywhere. And because he's a spirit, he can enter, he can penetrate the mind of man and the heart of man, the soul of man, of every individual if he pleases to do so. He can go right into your soul, into the depth of your being, and convict you of sin. He can shine the light of His Word, or just bring to your memory, to your conscience, to your mind, sins that you did not even see in your heart. Because desperately wicked is the heart of man. It's deceitful. We trick ourselves. We think we are better than we are. Jennifer prayed that in the prayer meeting this evening. That our hearts deceive us. We think we're good, but we're not. And so the Spirit enters. The Spirit knows all things. He knows the heart of every single human being. How do I know that? Well, first of all, He's God. But it says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10 and 11, that the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. If the Holy Spirit knows God's thoughts and all of God's thoughts, who is He? And if He knows God's thoughts, does the Spirit of God not know our thoughts? The Spirit of God, He sees these signs. When you just sigh, you can't even pray. pray. You're suffering. You just go, the Holy Spirit knows what you mean. God searches the hearts. He knows the hearts of all men. And He knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So how does the Spirit convict people of sin? How does He bring to your conscience? How does He show you sin? Well, I just said it. I just said it. The very general way that the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, I need doom. Like those prosperity pastors. But for different purposes. This fly. The Holy Spirit very generally convicts you of sin in your conscience. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts, says, says um, uh, Proverbs chapter 21. Romans 2 says that the Holy Spirit works in your conscience and he shows you. It says every man has a conscience and you know what is right and you know what is wrong. The Holy Spirit shows you, you know that God exists. You can see it by the wings of a ladybird. You can see it by eating chocolate. And I'm serious about that. You can see the glory of God in a sunrise. You like taking pictures of sunsets, right? And Sunay also. I've seen that on your status. Uh, you can see the glory of God in a rainbow. You see the glory of God in the, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or in the bush where you like to go, uh, Jeremy and Jackie, seeing wildlife. You can see the glory of God in the enjoyment of family and just being together uh, as a family, maybe over Christmas, enjoying, enjoying summer evenings. So, so the Holy Spirit shows the unbeliever, you know God exists. And you know, because you choose not to serve Him, you know judgment is coming. Every unbeliever on his or her deathbed, oh, you could call yourself an atheist, when you lie on your deathbed, you know there's a God, and you're going to face Him. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. So that's what the Spirit does. But here Jesus says... The Spirit will come when I go away. I will send Him. And then He will convict the world. So now it's in a more special way. So when Jesus went up to heaven, He ascended to heaven, He sent the Spirit. And now, when the Gospel is preached, when we hear the good news of Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts people and say, Why do you not believe in Jesus? Verse 9, I will convict them of sin because they do not believe in Me. 
He will convict them. He will show. It's as if the Spirit says, you know that the things that are now being preached about Jesus, this gospel, you know Jesus is real. You know this is true. You know it is not illogical when these things are spoken about Christ. You know there's more than enough evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. He's the Son of God. There's evidence for His miracles. There's evidence for His teachings. There were more than enough eyewitnesses. So we've got the external evidence, but you've got the sheer power of the Word of God. You know it's true. And then the Holy Spirit comes and says, you cannot deny Jesus. You cannot ignore Jesus. The reason you deny Jesus, the reason you ignore Jesus is not because it's not true. There's not not, not enough evidence. It's because you love your sin. That's why you will not repent. So unbelief, it's more than an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. There's something wrong and broken inside of man's nature. So that, that said, it does not help you try to convict an atheist with mere logical arguments. He will just keep on arguing. You need to show him the reason you will not believe in God, the reason you deny Christ is because you love your sin. So go for the conscience. Get to the conscience and show him that. Show him his sin. And tell him that's why you will not believe. You love your sin. And, and the same, that use the same tactic with that unbeliever who says he believes in God's existence, but then he comes and says, no, God is a God of love. He will never send someone to hell. Show him. That is a God of your own invention. That is a God of your own imagination. The reason you make up that God in your imagination, in your mind, is because, once again, you love your sin. You do not want a judgment to be So what you do is you use the law. That is how the Spirit works. One of the ways, not the only. Use the law to drive men to Christ. Use the law. That is what you do, Ebert. That is what you do, Lawrence. That is what you do, Timothy. You go out evangelizing, Jennifer. And all of us, wherever you meet with people and share the gospel, you use the law. Because the law is the schoolmaster. The law is the schoolmaster to Christ, showing you... You have sinned against God, and it drives the person, but what can I do? I'm lost. Ah, let me bring you now the good news of the one who kept the law perfectly, of the one who paid the price for our law-breaking by dying on a cross for sinners. So the Holy Spirit uses the law. But remember, though you can speak the law to people, It is the Spirit alone who can draw the sword from its sheath, the sword of the Word of God, to drive it into men's souls, so that when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, they cut to the heart and they say, what must we do, brothers? The sword of the Spirit that cuts to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it shows the intentions of the heart, and all things are laid bare before the God to whom we must give an account. All things are open and naked before Him. We cannot hide from the eyes of a, the piercing eyes of God, who sees the soul and the inward heart of man. Isn't that what Paul calls the word, the Bible? The sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6:17. So that's what the Holy Spirit often uses, but not only. Not only, but often. But what the Spirit does, the Holy Spirit shows the sinner. I mean, anyone here can hear the preaching tonight. Some of you will walk out unchanged and unmoved and unsaved and still lost in your sin. Because we need the work of the Spirit. 
We need the work of the Spirit to come and to show to the sinner that the Christ you have heard of this evening is real. Everything the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ is true. He shows you the teaching of Christ, the work of Christ who died on a cross and rose again and lived for us. It's real. All Scripture is inspired by God. And it's that Scripture that we need to preach. Preach the Word in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But we need the Spirit. You see, the Spirit needs to show to the sinner, you are guilty as charged. You stand guilty before a living God. You are guilty before the judge. You will answer. You will give an account. You deserve punishment for rebelling against the King of Kings, against the God who gave you life. And this we see in verse 8. The Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sometimes, and some of you might disagree, but we're going to get there. And now I'm spilling the beans and getting to what some of you had waited for for almost a year. What was the thing you said in a sermon in January? You said there's something you changed in your theology after 20 years. Well, here it comes. Now I'll leave it for next year. <laughs> Sometimes the Holy Spirit lays bare, opens the heart of a sinner and points out his sin and shines the light of his sin by a word of knowledge or by the gift of prophecy. And you know where I was for at least when you got to this church and for 20 years, and I'll explain it when we get there. But let me just explain this. The, uh, the gift of prophecy is never new revelation added to Scripture. We've got the complete 66 books. We need no books added to the Bible. But what happens with the gift of prophecy or a word of knowledge is for a specific person or a specific, a specific, or a specific circumstance where the Holy Spirit points out something. For instance, here's a pastor preaching his normal sermon on a Sunday. He brings the word of God and then suddenly something comes into his mind that he didn't plan to say. Like Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon even uses the word prophecy in his autobiography. I checked it this week. So, for instance, and Spurgeon says he can point to a dozen of cases like this. He was busy preaching, and while he was preaching, suddenly he pointed in a direction and said, that young man sitting there. Now, there are 5,000 people in his church on a Sunday. You stole gloves from, from your employer. You stole gloves from, from your boss at work. You must repent and take it back. And afterward, the young man comes. And he said, please, please, you described it so accurately. Yes, I did. And I've never done this before. Please don't let my mother know. She'll, uh, uh, she'll be heartbroken if she finds out her son has become a thief. And then Spurgeon talks to him. And this boy is saved from worse crimes. Another time, Spurgeon preaches. And while he's preaching, he says, yes. And there's a man who keeps his shop open on Sundays. He's a shoemaker, and last Sunday, he works for the devil because he took nine pence and he put four pence in his pocket. And someone afterwards says, 
Have you heard of Spurgeon? In that week he says, oh yes. He described me very accurately last Sunday in the sermon. He says there's a man here who has a shoe shop. He kept his shop open. Last Sunday he took nine pence. That's exactly what happened. And I put, put four pence in my pocket. And so this man is encouraged. He goes to Spurgeon, tells the story. Spurgeon shares the gospel with him and he gets saved. I've got, I have an experience like that. And it happened last year. Yes, last year. I'm busy preaching a series in the morning. And as I preach, after the morning sermon, someone phones me and says, you said something in that sermon. That was exactly what I was thinking. And it was a sinful thing. That was exactly what I was thinking as the service started. And the guy could hardly finish talking to me. He was weeping. Because God had cut open his soul by something that was said in the sermon. He was under conviction of sin. That you see in 1 Corinthians. And that's why I called it the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. It's opened. It's laid bare. And falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And that's how the Holy Spirit often works. Through people to expose the sinner's heart. What God expects of the preacher is to preach with boldness and to submit to the Spirit and to, where it's necessary, to speak about sin, to do it. And we get this in Micah chapter 3, Micha chapter 3 verse 8. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. Why? To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So that is the part of the preacher. To submit to the voice of the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit in the Word and sometimes outside of the Word, not against the Word, but sometimes like Spurgeon. He didn't plan to say it. And suddenly in the sermon he says it. And God uses that. And it's true. Stuart Olliott in his little book, and it's a controversial book, Something Must Be Known and Felt, but it's a very good book and I believe sound and biblical. But he says, sometimes the Spirit works without the Word to convict people of sin. Now that is very controversial in my circles. I'm a Reformed Baptist, and if you say that in my circles, people will say, you don't believe in that the Bible is enough. You don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Not true. Let me give you examples of this. The Holy Spirit convicts people sometimes without the Word. So I know there's the example in the Old Testament of Abimelech in Abimelech, Abimelech in, in Genesis 20 where he, he takes Abraham's wife and then in a dream the Lord warns him and says, you've taken another man's wife. Now you might say, well, we've got the Bible now, we don't need dreams. True, we don't need dreams to guide us how to live. We've got the sufficient word of God. But is it not true that in the providence of God he sometimes warns a person by a dream? And that person is not saved by the dream, but he's convicted. I'll give you an example later on of this kind of thing. 
You've got an example in Acts 16 of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are in prison. They're singing praises to God. How is that man convicted of his sin? By preaching? The preaching of the word? No. First of all, that man is con- he's saved under the preaching of the word. That's true. But he's convicted of his sin by an earthquake. Where the earth shakes, the prison doors swing open, the chains fall off their, their ankles and off their wrists. And this man runs inside. He wants to commit suicide. Paul says, we're all inside. No one has escaped. And the man falls trembling on his knees. What must I do to be saved? God uses circumstances sometimes to convict people. Sometimes hard circumstances. He crushes them to the ground to bring them under conviction. You're under the judgment of God. You deserve punishment. And then he brings them the joy of salvation through the gospel. John Wesley is a point in case. John Wesley is in a storm between England and the United States. And there are some Christians on this boat. They've got some strange ideas, but they're real Christians, the Moravians, the Moravians. And John Wesley sees when the storm is raging and everyone's screaming out, he sees these Moravians are singing psalms and they're praising the Lord in the storm. And he's brought under such conviction of his lostness. And he says, I don't have that. I don't have that. So again, God uses difficult circumstances. So that's again, without the word sometimes, that the Spirit convicts people of their lostness and their sin. And for some people, that leads to salvation. Stuart Olliott has a story like this in his book, Something Must Be Known and Felt, I referenced earlier. He has a story of a friend. This friend, one evening, woke up in the middle of the night. It's the dead of winter in England. You don't want to go outside. And the guy is, doesn't want to go out. But there's this nagging something drawing him to go out and walk, go for a walk in the middle of the night. And he thought, this is no nonsense. And he can't shake it off. And eventually he gets up and he goes out in the middle of the night. He said, he writes an email to Stuart Olliott saying, when I went out of the door, I did not believe in God. When I came back into the door that night, I believed in God and I wanted to know him. And later on, he started reading the Gospel of Mark. He got to a Gospel preaching church and God saved him. So the Lord used that to bring him under conviction of his lostness. Another story is the story of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson, I spoke about this morning. He was a Baptist missionary from the United States. And he went to modern-day Myanmar. It was called Burma in those days, close to Thailand. But how he was saved, he was brought up in a Christian home. And then when he, when he was 19 years old, he left home. I think he went to New York. And there he met a deist. A deist is someone who basically believes God is dead. So they believe God created the world. The popular illustration is it's like you wind up the clock and then you just leave it. You don't work with it anymore. So God created the world, wound up the clock, and then just left it, and God is no more. God has just disappeared. And so Jacob, uh, um, Adoniram Judson gets in touch with a guy called Jacob Eames. And this is the guy who influences him to start believing in deism. God is dead. There's no God who's involved in this world and so on. And then they part ways. And eventually after some years, Adoniram Judson, he lives in a, an inn, in a herberg, in a motel, a hotel. 
And while he's there, the guy says, yes, I have a room for you, but there's a guy in the room next to you. He's very, very ill. He's busy dying. And so Adoniram Judson says, it's fine. I need a place to stay for the night. So he stays. And he says, in the night he hears the noises and terrible achings and pains and it's horrible. But he does fall asleep. And the next morning he pays. And as he leaves, he says to the innkeeper, by the way, How's the guy in the room next door? And the innkeeper says he died. And Judson is shocked because in the night he was thinking about death. And is this really true? Deism that God isn't there. What if I die like this man? Is this man ready to meet God? And all of these things. But then just before he goes out, he says, what was the guy's name? And the innkeeper says, Eames, Jacob Eames. That's the guy who influenced him with a false teaching. And then Judson eventually gets saved. But see what happens. God, the Holy Spirit, sometimes brings conviction of sin without the Word. Sometimes through the Word. And I would say probably mostly and very often through the Word. But in many cases, without the Word. This is important. This matter of conviction. No one is saved until he realizes he's lost. Why will you come to Jesus if you don't think you're lost? That's why it's so hard to convert church people. Because they think they're saved. You must realize you're lost. The Spirit must bring this to your heart. If you've got a happy, jolly conversion where you hop and skip. I saw that on TV once. There was some, some crusade uh, with evangelistic crusade at the stadium in, in South Africa. And then the preacher did an altar call. And so these people hopped and skipped two friends. Hopped and skipped to the front. They're now going to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Where's the conviction of sin? Where's I am lost, I need a Savior? That is not a true conversion. Because Jesus told us about such people. He said the seed is sown. And some of the seed falls in, in shallow ground where the rock is underneath the soil. The rock bed. And they grow up very quickly with joy. They accept the word. But they fall away just as quickly when trials and persecution comes. And temptation. Now I don't mean, I don't mean to say that in every case conviction of, of sin is equally intense. In some cases conviction of sin is very intense. With John Bunyan it lasted for some years Went on for years, this conviction, he's lost, he's lost. With other people, like a lady who came to speak to Charles Spurgeon, it's not as intense. So there was a lady come, came to Spurgeon and she said to, to Mr. Spurgeon, after the sermon, he spoke to her and she said, I just saw, I saw the loveliness of Christ. And I saw how wonderful the Lord Jesus is when you spoke of him. And I thought, I'm not like that. I'm so filthy, but I want to know him. And she called upon the Lord and he saved her. So it wasn't as intense. Don't be concerned. It's just because of load shedding. We need the camera up close. The power's going to cut at six. So you, you see, sometimes very intense, sometimes not as intense. Let's just put intensity aside for a moment. The point is, every single convert, everyone who is saved, Alka Bakirlin, 
Every convert, you first have a spirit of bondage, a spirit of slavery, before there's a spirit of adoption. So when the Holy Spirit acts, now Lloyd-Jones makes a very convincing case, Romans 8.15, Gies van Slavernij, Gies van Onium. He says both of those are the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the first case shows you you are a slave of sin. You're a slave of the devil. You need a savior. And then once you call out to be saved, then the Spirit, he comes as the spirit of adoption and says, you are mine. Second question. What follows on, what happens after conviction? So what's the next thing that happens then? I've got news for some of you and news for myself. Not everyone who is under conviction of sin gets saved. I confused that for many years, thinking because people cry about their sins, that means they've now been saved. They've now repented. That's not the case. That's not true. Many people cry about their sins. It's not really tears for their sin. They cry because they feel guilty. And they hate this feeling, this crushing feeling of guilt. Some people cry because they're embarrassed about their sin. It's so embarrassing. I've been caught out and now everyone knows what I've done. Some people cry because of the bad consequences they're going to have to face. They're going to have to face the music now and they don't want to. They don't like that. Some people cry because they're afraid. They're in terror. They're terrified because of punishment. God's going to punish me for my sin. That's why they're crying. Some people cry because of social pressure. They'll sit in a church and someone preaches a very powerful message and they're under conviction and someone starts crying then and another one there and another one there and they look around. Everyone's crying and they start crying. I remember doing that to Nicole. That was nasty. So she was very small. Very small. I think she wasn't a year. No, she must have been over a year. And she would sit in her walking ring and I'm in the bath. And as I dry myself, I go like this to her. And then she really starts crying. Yeah, you can draw tears from a crowd by in the movie house. So the fact that others cry that often may lead you to cry, that doesn't mean that you're repenting of your sin. Maybe it's psychological manipulation. You can draw tears from a crowd. Sarah Edwards said, George Whitfield can draw tears from a crowd simply by saying the word Mesopotamia. By, by some, and, and George Whitfield, that wasn't psychological manipulation. He really preached under the power of the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit. But you can psychologically manipulate people and make them cry. And you might think, okay, now they're sorry for their sin. I mean, Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, I've sinned. Exodus 9 and Exodus, I'm sorry, Moses. What about in 1 Kings 21, King Ahab? He's really sorry and he's crying. He's really tearing his clothes. He wasn't sorry for his sin. Judas wasn't sorry for his sin. He said, I repent. I've done wrong. I've betrayed an innocent man. And then he does another sin to cover his sin. He hangs himself. That's not repentance of sin. Then you've got another case that uh, Gideon just read about, Felix. He was trembling when Paul preached about judgment, righteousness, judgment, and self-control. King Herod, he feared when John the Baptist preached in Mark chapter 6, verse 20. You've got 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where there's worldly sorrow. 
People, they've got sorrow for some consequences of sin, but not for sin itself. I remember when I was eight years old, lying in my bed crying because I'm afraid to go to hell. And I wasn't saved until the age of 30. What about Charles Finney with his altar call system? He made it popular. He didn't invent it, but he made it popular. You find altar calls nowhere in Scripture, by the way. And I don't say you can't be saved by an altar call. I had a false conversion. I know people who were truly converted by an altar call. But it's not in Scripture. So what Finney did, he would manipulate people psychologically often. Some were really converted, but some not. Actually, many not. And Finney acknowledged that. I saw that at a funeral where a whole church came forward. The altar call went on for 45 minutes, longer than the sermon. And the music kept playing. So you, you psych people up. Everyone's going and you even appoint people. Will you stand up? Will you stand up? And you stand up. So when I make the invitation, you stand up just to, get, to prime the pump, to get the other people coming. That's psychological manipulation. And I, I'm not saying that preachers who do that aren't sincere. Some of them are very sincere. They want people to be saved. I'm just saying you can... You can abuse that. I don't do it. I don't think it's biblical, but you can abuse that system very easily. Some people, when they're under conviction of sin, do you know what they do? They grind their teeth and they attack you, like they did with Stephen and they killed him in Acts 7, because they're under conviction of sin. Some people, like the Apostle Paul too, the Apostle Paul started persecuting people because he's kicking against the pricks. He's under conviction by Stephen's sermon. And he doesn't want to hear that this Jesus is Lord. Eventually Jesus stops him in his tracks. Some people harden themselves when they're under conviction of sin. They refuse. They refuse. They stiffen their neck. It says in Proverbs 21, uh, 29 verse 1. Some people like John Bunyan, when they're under conviction of sin, they try to be all religious to try and please God and pacify Him and cancel out their sin. Maybe if I go to church more, read the Bible more, give to the poor, God will forgive my sin. True conversion also needs conviction of sin. So verse 8, the Spirit comes, He convicts the world. But the Spirit does not only do verse 8 when someone is truly converted. It goes on, the Lord opens Lydia's heart. And she understands what Paul is saying in Acts 16 verse 14. The Holy Spirit must regenerate you. The Holy Spirit, you know what a generator is. So the Holy Spirit must bring life, vibrancy, make you a new creation, remove the heart of stone, give your heart of flesh. So that's the next step after conviction of sin. And so that's when someone is truly converted. That will be the next step. The Spirit opens their eyes and they see Jesus. And they understand the mind is opened. The gospel comes not in word only, but in power and with the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. That's what happened to you. And I'm pointing to you because you're probably the only convert in 10 years of preaching. <laughs> Maybe there have been others, but I so long that God would save people. But all of us who've been saved, that's what happened. The Spirit opened your heart. And what happens this, then is the conviction of sin then leads to repentance. Where you're so sorry about your sin. You've grieved God. You hate your sin. God is right. I am wrong. I deserve punishment. You call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You confess your sins. You repent. And then the Holy Spirit, He brings Christ to your heart. 
Ephesians 3 speaks of this, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, but the previous verse, by the power of the Spirit in the inward being, in the inner man. So he brings, the, he brings the Lord Jesus and Christ lives in you and you live in Him. You no longer live, you've been crucified with Christ and you start bearing fruit and your life changes and you persevere, you keep on bearing fruit and living obediently and repenting of sin and trusting in the Savior. Final question, number three. What does the Holy Spirit convict us of? What does He convict us of? So the Holy Spirit, first of all, <clears throat> the answer is in verse 8. And you might miss the answer. What does the Holy Spirit convict us of? Don't say sin. That's not the first thing. What's the first thing in the verse? When He comes, He will convict the world. He will show you you love the world. You like the rest of them. You're part of the system who follows the devil. You're lying in the lap of the devil, being lulled to sleep. You love the desires of your eyes, the desires of your sinful nature. You love the pride of life, bragging that you're better than others. You think you're the, you're the bee's knees. You're a rebel against God. You love darkness. You hate the light. So that's what he convicts you of. You love the world's music. You love those. I was sitting at the, the barber the other day and I heard a horrible song about sexual immorality. You love that kind of music. You love the world's entertainment with SNVL, sex, violence, nudity and language. You love those kinds of movies. You love... The world's fashion. The things that do not please God. You love the world's chasing after money, materialism. You love the world's language and their dirty jokes. And therefore you have made yourself an enemy of God. The love of the Father is not in you. 1 John 2.15, James 4 verse 4. So the Holy Spirit now comes and convicts the world, verse 8. He convicts them of sin and righteousness and judgment. What's the sin he convicts them of? It's not just stealing. It's not just telling lies and committing adultery. What is the sin? Look in verse 9. What's the sin? You can answer it aloud. Unbelief. They do not believe. Unbelief. You do not believe Jesus is the Son of God. You don't believe he's the Messiah. Maybe you say it with your lips, but you don't live it. So the mere fact, the bare fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out, the fact that the Spirit come in and of itself was the conviction. To show the world, you said Jesus is dead. You said he's not the Son of God, but he's been raised. He has been, he has been exalted at the Father's right hand as King and Lord and Messiah. How else did the Spirit come and these people speak in other languages? That is the proof. All the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, He will pour the Spirit upon you. Joel 2 said that. So you can go and read Acts chapter 2. All those Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. You might think unbelief is a small matter. It's no small matter. You know, one of the students at the seminary, when I taught those rugby factory guys, I went in once a week to teach a class. At least I'd go for three weeks and then skip a few weeks. Someone else would take the class and I'd, I'd go back again my turn. But one of the young students said to me, the, the rugby players, he said to me, um, Sir, you know, I'm a rugby player. 
got a question. <laughs> and he, he said, um, so let's say someone, he riv- lives a really good life and he does everything right, but the only thing he does wrong, he doesn't believe in Jesus. Is he now going to go to hell? Well, first of all, you're not going to do everything right if you don't believe in Jesus. And secondly, but he just, the only thing he doesn't do, as if it's a small matter, not believing in Jesus. That is a major issue. That is a massive issue. That, <coughs> excuse me, this is because of the pump I have to use for my lungs, so my voice goes hoarse. Uh, so, so that's no small matter. Every sin springs from unbelief. Spurgeon said, this is the monoxin. This is the essence of guilt, the mixture of the poison of all crimes, unbelief. It's the dregs of the wine of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the A1 sin. It's the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil. Unbelief murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelief is the egg of all crime, the seed of every offense. In fact, everything that is evil and vile lies couched in that one word. Unbelief. Spurgeon is right. Where's the very first time in the Bible you find unbelief? It's actually a silly question. Adam and Eve. They did not believe God is good. Satan said, God is not good. Look at this. Did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Why is God holding back this from you? And so that was unbelief. We do not believe God is good. God is a liar. You can't believe God. He lies. He says you will die. You will surely not die. God is hiding stuff from you. What was the sin? Unbelief. They do not believe God is true. God speaks truth. They do not believe they will die if they eat the fruit. Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. Those who do not believe in the Son of God are condemned already because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. John 3, verse 18. That condemns much of what's going on in Afrikaans traditional churches in South Africa. There are many liberals going around. They do not believe Jesus rose from the dead bodily. They do not believe in the virgin birth. They do not believe the Bible's teaching about Satan and demons. They do not believe the Bible is the word of God. They do not believe in the miracles of Christ. This condemns them. And this condemns those who say, I do believe in all these things about Jesus, but your life has not changed. Because you've got the faith of devils. Because the devil also believes The devils believe and they tremble, says James 2.19. So can I ask you something tonight? You have come to the service. I speak by the authority of the living God. I speak not my own words, but the words of Scripture. Are you condemned tonight? Are you convicted by the spirit of unbelief? You do not believe. Then you need to repent and you need to believe the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. Everything he says about Christ. And then the Spirit continues, verse 8. Jesus continues and says the Spirit will convict people of righteousness. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead. 
Romans 1 verse 4, Romans 8 verse 11. And the Holy Spirit shows Christ was raised from the dead. He's the living Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He is the righteous one. Why did the Father raise Jesus from the dead? <clears throat> to show he's not guilty. Who dies? Sinners. Was Jesus a sinner? No. Why did he die? For our sins. He's not guilty. He's the righteous one. So the Holy Spirit shows the world, you killed the righteous one. You are unrighteous. You said we are righteous. He is unrighteous. He's evil. He's a sinner. And now it's shown you are the sinners. You murdered the Son of God. You drove nails through his feet and hands and put a spear in his side. You are self-righteous. You think you are righteous. You like the Apostle Paul before he was saved. He thought he was righteous in the sight of God. I'm a Pharisee. I do everything right. But you were wrong. Jesus is the one who is righteous. There is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. So do not trust in your substandard self-righteousness. Do not think you can please God by just trying your best and trying to be better. Listen to the whispering of the Spirit of God. Listen to the Holy Spirit as He whispers and says, Jesus is the righteous one. Trust in Him. Trust in Jesus and His righteousness will be put to your books by faith. What must you repent of? Not just your immorality. You must repent of your morality. Don't just repent of your sin. Repent of trusting in your good works. Flee from all of that to the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Receive the righteousness of Christ. And then finally we see also in verse 8, he not only convicts of sin, righteousness, righteousness, but also of judgment. He convicts us of judgment. What is that judgment he convicts you of? First of all, he does not convict you of the final judgment, God's going to judge you for your sin. But he, he convicts you of your judgment, your twisted judgment, your skewed judgment for crucifying the Son of God. For looking at Jesus and saying, he's just the son of Joseph and Mary. He cannot be the son of God. For looking at Jesus in John 9 verse 24 and saying, that man is a sinner. He convicts you of your twisted judgment in looking at Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, he's punished by God. He's a criminal. Isaiah 53 verse 4. We esteemed him stricken by God. He's punished by God. He convicts them of their twisted judgment for looking at Jesus and saying, you know, he looks to me just like an ordinary human being. How can he be the son of God? So the Spirit comes, convicts people of their twisted judgment like the Apostle Paul, like the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council who condemned Jesus to death by judging him. 
And like the Apostle Paul who said, we judged Jesus according to the flesh. In other words, we just looked at him as a human being and say, that's not God. So he convicts them of a skewed judgment, and the world does the same to this day. Jehovah's Witnesses, they, <clears throat> they say, Jesus cannot be God. He slept in a boat. God doesn't sleep. Twisted judgment. Buddhists, Jesus is not God. He's just a wise moral teacher. Muslims, Jesus is not God. He's a prophet, but he's not God. Atheists, well. Liberals, Jesus is just a good example we should follow. He's not God. Twisted judgment, the Jews, he's a blasphemer, that Jesus. He should have been killed. It's good he was. And then the Holy Spirit shows them your judgment is wrong. Your judgment is wrong. Why did the Father punish His Son? Why did Jesus hang on that cross, not for His sin, but for your sin? <clears throat> you continue to verse 11. Excuse me. <clears throat> A lot of slime. Sorry for that. So, He convicts them and says, the reason He died on that cross is not because He was judged. He was busy judging the evil one. He crushed Satan and his forces by dying on that cross. He crushed the serpent's head. It says so in verse 11. The ruler of this world is judged. That's the one who is judged. Satan, who thinks he's in charge. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, almost done. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. Is it only the world that is convicted by the Spirit? Have you ever been convicted as a Christian that you're doing something wrong? So the Holy Spirit also convicts believers. Like David, his conscience struck him after he had cut the corner of Saul's robe. His conscience struck him. His heart struck him. Or David, sometimes God uses people. After committing adultery and murder, the prophet Nathan walk up, walks up to him, sticks his nose under David's, or his finger under David's nose and says, you're the man. You're guilty. Sometimes God rebukes us in that way. Sometimes God uses difficult circumstances to convict us of sin. He puts you through the mills. You're going through hard times. Psalm 119, verse 67, It's good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your word. The Holy Spirit took me through that difficult time to bring me back and teach me the truth of his word. I don't mean the Holy Spirit throws your sin in front of your face. Because God remembers our sins no more. He's not going to, in an ugly way, bring that. But He does remind you. He does remind you of sins you've missed. Sins you've forgotten about. Sins you've ignored. And He brings it to your conscience and says, That is not right. That is not right. So I want to close by saying this. I want to encourage you, all of us tonight, to pray... Psalm 139. Try me and know my thoughts. That is, a, that is a hard thing to pray. You know what you pray? Toets me in ken my gedagtes. Jere, sit my bieke dier beproeben en wees my wat in my hand is. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, anything that grieves you, that makes you sad. And lead me in the way of the last thing. Closing illustration. One Sunday, 
I take people to a place of public transport. They need public transport, they're going somewhere else. When we get there, I have to wait with them because the public transport has not yet arrived. As I'm sitting there, one of the persons gets really irritated with the children, not my children, other children. And the person starts yapping and yapping and yapping and yapping at the children. And I get irritated inside and I think, I didn't say this, but I just thought, just shut up. Public transport comes, they go on their holiday, wherever they went. I come back home Monday morning. I cannot pray. I'm struggling to pray. It's like I'm reading the Bible, there's nothing. Tuesday, quiet time, nothing. Sermon preparation, nothing. Wednesday, sermon preparation, struggling, frustrated, quiet time, prayer. My prayers are hitting the ceiling. And I'm so discouraged. And I say, Lord, please help. Why? Show me if there's something wrong. Show me. And immediately it comes to my mind. You got really irritated on Sunday. And you even thought something there. And I'm under conviction. And I plead for the Lord's forgiveness. I say, Lord, forgive me. Please forgive me. Immediately, a peace floods my heart and my soul. And the joy of the Lord. And for the next two or three days, I am in seventh heaven in my quiet time and in my sermon preparation. I experience such a joy of the Spirit of God, such delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, such desire to do everything, even make coffee for my wife to the glory of God. And I'm serious. Everything I did, I wanted to just please God. Now, if that's what the Holy Spirit does in conviction of sin, then I'm really pleased and say thank you. For the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction. Father, I do pray indeed that this evening, this very night, even as we now go to the Lord's table and partake of the bread and the cup, that you would bring us under conviction of sin by your wonderful love, O Spirit of God. Come now and work and glorify Jesus in our midst. Amen.